Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts today. There's another host that is joining me, Daniel Sun. Yo, what's up? Now, real quick, before we start today's episode, I just want to say that if you would like to support the show, then there's a few ways that you can do that. One of the ways is Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is only 16 cents a day. Not only do you get an extra episode per week for that $5, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes. In total, we have over 154 extra Patreon episodes, which is a lot of extra hours for your listening pleasure. So to see this full list of Patreon episodes, go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, click on the Patreon Episodes tab, and there will be the entire list of past Patreon-exclusive episodes that we have published. Also, by the way, there are no ads on Patreon episodes. That's right. Boom. Also, today we added another Patreon-exclusive episode, which is a Theories Thursday in which we discuss astral projection and an individual who died while performing it, as well as other mysterious topics. So you get access to that episode, as well as all of the others, for just $5. Now, if you can't afford a Patreon membership, but you want to help us out, then you can leave us a written review on iTunes or on Spotify, and that helps us out a lot. However, don't feel pressure to leave us one. If you don't want to, then that's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are to enjoy the show. And that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is over the Kamar Daban incident. So how this episode will go today is that we'll first talk about the region of Russia, which this entire topic revolves around. We'll kind of describe it a little bit. And then we'll talk about individuals involved in the incident, then the incident itself. And then we'll go into strange facts and findings that we found while investigating the topic. Then we'll go into theories. And then, of course, wrap it all up with our own personal thoughts and theories. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. In 1993, seven hikers were traveling along a beautiful mountain range when they were suddenly overcome with horrific symptoms. Blood streamed from their eyes and noses. They clutched at their throats, began convulsing, and bashed their heads against rocks. Was this strange incident connected to the deaths at Dyatlov Pass that occurred several decades earlier? Or was it the result of the government secretly testing military weapons on unknowing citizens? Or perhaps it was the result of an accidental release of chemical agents? This is the Kamar Daban Incident. All right, 
So to start off today's topic, we need to discuss the region where this incident took place so that we better understand this mysterious event. So Dan, can you give us a little tour of the area? So our topic today occurred in the country of Russia, specifically in the south part of Russia near the Mongolian-Russia border. Near this border, there is the Kamardaban Ridge, which is a beautiful mountain range that stretches from the west to the east for over 200 miles. Now, even though the mountain range stretches pretty far, it doesn't contain very tall mountains, the highest one being only 2,371 meters high. Still, this area is considered a majestic and beautiful place by many and regarded as a safe hiking destination. Due to this, during the summer and winter months, many tourists from all over the world come and visit the area. All right, so that right there kind of gives you an overview of where this area is located and what it looks like. Now let's hop into the event itself. So this entire story starts back in August of 1993. A group of tourists from Kazakhstan arrived in Irkutsk by train. By the way, Irkutsk is a city that is located in the south part of Russia and is not far from the Kamardaban Ridge. So a lot of people who plan on hiking that mountain range will usually meet up in this city. Anyway, continue with the story, Aaron. So the group of individuals from Kazakhstan arrived in Irkutsk with the intention of hiking the Kamardaban Ridge for the next few days. In total, there was seven individuals, three girls, three boys, and the lead hiker, Ludmila. Now, Ludmila was a 41-year-old expert survivalist and hiking instructor. She was highly respected among her colleagues and students as an excellent teacher who taught vital hiking skills. So the other six individuals that came along with Ludmila for the hike were all her students. One of the individuals was 23-year-old Alexander Kreisen. And just a little knowledge nugget, at the age of 12, Alexander had joined the hiking club, and that is when he first met Ludmila. And since then, he always went hiking with her, and the two became very close, basically forming a mother and son relationship. So another hiker in the group was 19-year-old Dennis, and he was also a member of the hiking club. Then there was 24-year-old Tatiana, who worked as a secretary, loved hiking mountains, and she had previously gone on other hikes that Ludmila had led. Now, the other three hikers in the group were still students of Ludmila, but they were all underage. There was 15-year-old Timur, 16-year-old Victoria, and 17-year-old Valentina, a.k.a. Valia. And just an FYI, uh, but Ludmila did not want Victoria, the 16-year-old, going on this hike with them. Now, this was because on a previous hike, Victoria broke down from fatigue and became irritable and very unpredictable. Of course, Ludmila did not like this. However, Victoria wanted to go on the Kamar Daban hike really bad, so she had her mom call Ludmila and beg her, in which she gave in and agreed that Victoria would come. So those are the six hiking students and their leader. Now, like we previously stated, the group arrived in Irkutsk by train on August 2nd, 1993. Now, they traveled to the mountain range, excited for their journey ahead. The six students were enthusiastic to prove themselves as capable hikers during their trip, having bonded over months of preparation and anticipation. So before they started their hike, Ludmila checked the weather forecast for the following days and it stated that it was going to be sunny with clear skies. 
they decided to go ahead and start their trek, and for the first two days, the hike proceeded more smoothly than expected. Now, something that we need to mention real quick is that on August 3rd, 1993, a large cyclone came through the city of Irkutsk, and it ended up raining a ton. So much so that the streets of Irkutsk had knee-high water rolling through it. So yeah, it was completely unexpected. Uh, also, keep in mind that the group hiking had no clue about this large storm. And it was, of course, making its way to the area where the hikers were located. So needless to say, they were not really prepared for this type of weather. All right, fast forward back to the story. So like we previously stated, the first two days of the hike were fairly smooth. However, on August 4th, as they were beginning their descent, the weather changed. They were hit by the storm and encountered heavy rains. At this time in the hike, they were in an area where there were no trees just a rocky mountain ridge. Now, due to this, the hikers and their supplies were soaked with rain, which ended up adding a lot more weight to their supplies, which, of course, slowed them down. Now, despite there being tree cover less than two miles from where they were at, Ludmila decided to set up camp in an open area due to how tired the group was. That night, the group was unable to start a fire, but they remained in high spirits. They set up two tents and huddled up inside of them. And we do have two photographs of the group, one that shows them all huddled together and another one that shows them huddled together again, but it completely pouring down rain. And we'll provide those pictures on our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, for anyone that wants to take a look at them. All right, so on August 5th at around 4 a.m., okay, now keep in mind this is when they're all huddled up in the two tents together. It's August 5th, 4 a.m., the stakes that were holding the tent into the ground were uprooted due to the heavy winds and rain. So, of course, they ran out there, patted them back down. Two hours later, at 6 a.m., the stakes were uprooted again, and one of the tents was torn open. At this point, the hikers and their sleeping bags were completely soaked. So any of them that had any dry supplies at all, they were not dry now. They were soaked. An hour or so later, the wind and rain slowed down. The group managed to build a campfire and shared breakfast. At around 10 a.m., the group collected their backpacks and began to walk down the mountain. After about 10 meters, 23-year-old Alexander, who was at the back of the group, fell down, stood back up to walk some more, but fell down again. He then began screaming. At this point, the entire group stopped, turned around, and were shocked at what they were witnessing. Alexander was bleeding from his eyes and ears and frothing at the mouth. He fell to the ground convulsing and then went still. Ludmila ran to him, trying to get Alexander to gain consciousness. She then yelled at the group to continue walking down the mountain. The group started walking, but they were confused and scared. A few moments later, they heard Lumina scream out. The group turned around and decided to run back to her. Ludmila's eyes and nose were pouring blood and she was frothing at the mouth. She started convulsing and then collapsed on top of Alexander. A few seconds later, 24-year-old Tatiana, who had gotten to Ludmila first, was the next to collapse. She fell to the ground and grabbed her throat as if she could not breathe. Tatiana then slowly crawled over to a nearby rock 
and bashed her head against it until she went limp. Right after that encounter, 15-year-old Tamor and 16-year-old Victoria said, F this, and both started running down the mountain. 19-year-old Dennis did not follow them and instead ran to a nearby rock and hid behind it. 17-year-old Valia just stood there, unable to move, having just watched three of her friends seemingly die with only a few minutes of one another. Only a few seconds later, while 15-year-old Timor and 16-year-old Victoria were running down the hill, they both collapsed. Both of them began throwing up blood, clawing at their own throats, and tearing their own clothes off. At this point, Dennis came out from behind the rock and was like, Valia, we gotta get the hell out of here. They both started running away from the site where their friends had died. However, less than a minute later, Dennis collapsed and began convulsing. Valia decided not to stop and render aid to Dennis, and instead, she kept running down the mountain until she was certain that she was far away from the area where her friends had died. At that point, she only had her sleeping bag and clothes on her back for supplies. So Valia decided to get under adequate tree cover, crawl into her sleeping bag, and fall asleep. Now, when Valia woke up the next morning on August 6th, she realized that she would need supplies if she was going to survive alone in the wilderness. However, the only supplies that she had was her sleeping bag. Everything else was at the site where her friends died. Valia had no other choice and made the trek back up the mountain, retracing her steps. When Valia reached the site, she saw that none of her friends' bodies had moved from the spots where they had fallen. Knowing that they were all dead, she quickly took the supplies she needed from their bodies and left. Valia started her trek back down the mountain and knew there was a river somewhere nearby. If she followed this river, then maybe she could be saved. Eventually, she came across the Shnezhna River and began to follow it. A few days later, on August 9th, a group of tourists from Kiev were kayaking the Shnezhna River at the base of the Kamardaban Mountains, and they noticed that there was something in the tree line. There was a lone girl standing there, staring at them. When the kayakers approached the girl, they noticed that she was covered in dried blood. The kayakers asked her if she was okay, and then eventually Valio revealed her identity to them and claimed that she had been hiking with a group of six other people. The kayakers took Valia to the local police station, a report was filed with them, and they questioned her. However, it took Valia several days to actually recount the events of what had happened. Now, we do have a map, and it's different from all the other ones online. This one actually shows the area. It has a point that shows the starting point of Lumidla's group, the last campsite that they were at. It shows where the hikers died and then it shows the river that Valia was picked up at. So, if you want to take a look at that, you can go to our website. It actually gives you a good uh, perspective of, like, how long they traveled and how close, you know, they were. They were, like, at the halfway point, almost, it looked like. Yeah. So, yeah, if you want to take a look at that map, like I said, you can go to our website. Anyways, let's continue on with the story. All right, so despite reporting what had happened to the police, no official search was conducted until the 23rd of August, and they did not find the bodies until August 26th. An autopsy was done on all six bodies, and the reports concluded that they had all died of hypothermia, except for Lumila, who had suffered a heart attack. They all had signs of bruised lungs and protein deficiency due to malnutrition 
that was listed as a contributing factor to their deaths. The deaths were ultimately ruled to be accidental. And that is the story of the Kamar Daban incident. However, just like with every topic we cover, the story does not end here because we decided to look deeper into this and found a lot of strange facts and findings, which we're going to get into right now. All right. So our first strange fact and finding, we decided to see if Valia has done any interviews. Now, a lot of news reports state that Valia is so shaken by the incident that she refuses to speak to the press. However, we did find a Russian article from 2018 where a journalist decided to track down Valia and interview her. So like Dan said, uh, the journalist was able to track down Valia and found out where she actually worked at. The journalist, instead of calling her up, just straight up went there and walked straight up to Valia face-to-face in hopes of an interview. Immediately seeing the journalist, Valia slammed the door in her face and said, and we quote, I'm not going to talk to you. That's exactly what she said. So after Valia slammed the door in the face of the journalist, the journalist said, well, you know what? I got all day. I'm just going to stand here. Persistent. Yep. A few moments later, Valia opened the door and asked the journalist what she wanted from her. The journalist stated that she needs to hear the truth from the main character, which is her, Valia, that she wants to know what truly happened at Kamar Daban. Valia then asked the journalist why she is bringing her back to this nightmare, that she has been living with her husband for 15 years, and up until two years ago, he didn't know that she was part of the incident until he watched a documentary, and it showed a photo of her, and he confronted her. Valia also stated that the journalists constantly write to her on social networks and that she has to block every single one. The journalist then tells Valia that she needs to speak out, that she has been keeping it all in for the past 25 years. At that point, Valia was like, all right, I guess I'll do an interview, and invited the journalist over to her house to conduct it. So what we're going to go over next is the interview itself. Dan will be playing the role of the journalist, and I will be Valia. So the interview starts off with Valia, her husband, and two children, all sitting around a table listening to the journalist conduct this interview. Valia starts off by saying, It happened on the fifth day of the campaign. Before that, everything was fine. Ludmila made a request to the weather station in advance, and she was assured that the weather would be fine. No one expected that the weather would change to cold showers. Was the entire group from Kazakhstan? Yes. The main route that we went on was carried out by a group where Ludmila's daughter, Natasha, was hiking. She was then 16 years old, and Natasha was the leader of that group. Our task was to ensure her group. If something happened, we would have come to the rescue. Which, pause real quick, uh, Ludmila had a daughter named Natasha who was 16 years old. She was the leader of other hikes in that same region, and Ludmila's main purpose of her group hike was to basically be like insurance for her daughter. So if something happened to the hiking group that her daughter was leading, Ludmila's group would come and rescue them, pretty much. Uh-huh. So, let's just, just FYI. All right, continue with the interview. Sorry. So, Valia, did you all have walkie-talkies? No, but our groups, which was Ludmila's, the one I was in, 
and Natasha's, they had several points of intersection. Can you remember the route from the map? It's unlikely. So many years have passed. Was it a difficult route? No, it was easy. During the hike, how many times a day did you eat? Four times a day, for sure. Definitely hot food. We lit a fire and cooked. In addition, we had snacks, cereal, powdered milk, crackers, stew, carrots, beets, onions, sweets, chocolates. In my opinion, the calculation was based on a 2,400 calorie per person per day. They say that you hiked along the area of the mountain where there is no forest, and therefore cooked on stoves, and supposedly you can't cook much on them. I don't really remember. I know we went down into the forest and made fires. This was only my third trip with Ludmila. She taught us drafting, drawing, and physical education. I studied in two specialties, a teacher of schoolwork and an instructor of school tourism, which is why I ended up in a tourist hiking club, which is the one that Ludmila ran, by the way. What kind of person was Ludmila? She was a bright woman, tall, slim, and beautiful. She had curls in her hair and had maybe a bow with a flower or something else in her hair. She was extravagant and always well-groomed. Was she married? No, but like we talked about earlier, she did have one daughter named Natasha that she raised herself. Now, there is an opinion that she is to blame for the death of the group. No way. When this occurred, it was very early in the morning, and it was very cold at the top of this mountain. Ludmila ordered us to pack our things and go down into the gorge. She tried to save us. The wind was so strong that we were sliding down instead of walking. Suddenly, Alexander fell down. He was foaming at the mouth. Ludmila sat down beside him, hugged him, and that was it. After that, a madhouse began, and I still don't understand how long it lasted. It was like a horror movie. Everyone was falling down with blood on them, foaming from the mouth, blood flowing from their noses. How did you escape? Dennis saved me. He kicked me and said, crawl down. I went down, but he didn't come. I got into my sleeping bag and fell asleep. I woke up the next morning and went back up the mountain. How do you think they died? I think pulmonary edema was the cause. According to the symptoms, it is suitable. Foam, blood from the mouth, insanity, etc. When you went back up to the mountain, were you hoping that someone was alive? No. I saw that they all had died. I went up there to retrieve a map and a compass. I then closed everyone's eyes. After that, I don't really remember how I got to the river. I do remember that I saw power lines and started following them, but overall I don't remember much. It was like someone was guiding me all that time. Who do you think was guiding you? My guardian angel. I survived with God's help. And how long did you walk? So the group died on August 5th, and on the 9th, I was picked up by the kayakers. So four days total. I remember standing on the shore and people sailing along the river before I was picked up. The kayakers who picked you up said that you washed your hair in the river and washed your clothes. Is that true? I don't know. Maybe. It's all so weird for me. I do remember that I bathed much later when we rafted down the river together, but in general, I just remember how stunned the kayakers were when they initially saw me. They brought their kayaks to shore, 
started asking me questions, and then gave me something to drink. What happened when you returned home? I initially didn't say anything to my parents, although they saw that I was blacker than clouds. By the way, that means she was depressed. Ah. Eventually, they pressed me. They said, you don't want to tell us anything? And that broke me. I told them, and they cried. Why did you leave Kazakhstan? That's how life is. There was no work. And that right there is the interview that Valya gave. And that's pretty much it. She really didn't give any other interviews. I mean, we looked for them. We couldn't find them. The interview that we did find was in Russian, so we had to translate the entire thing. Uh, but we did find a current photograph of her, and we'll post it up on our website for anyone that wants to take a look at it. And this is not doxing her, by the way, because this photograph is all over the internet for everyone to see. You can just look her name up, but out of convenience, we'll have it up on our website. So she looks pretty much the same as she did whenever she left on the hike, except she, of course, is a little bit older and has short blonde hair. Huh. Yep. So that's our first strange fact and finding, which is the interview that Valia gave. All right. So let's get into our next strange fact and finding. All right, so our next strange fact I'm finding is again about Valya, the lone survivor. We decided to dig deeper into her story and learn more about what happened after her friends died. In Valya's original account, she told the police, she talked about how she followed the power lines, but that they led her to an abandoned town with no people. Then she followed the water line, which led her to the river, which by that time, she was exhausted. Valya then ended up hanging up her white t-shirt on the branches. This is when the tourists from Kiev, who were on kayaks, paddled past her on the river and noticed Valya sitting by the river. Now, in the statements from the kayakers, they stated that Valya never tried to stop them, nor did she say anything to them. So, when they paddled past her, they just continued on their way. But, you know, curiosity got the best of them, and they decided to turn around and go see if she was okay. When they got back to her, she wouldn't speak to them at first, but then eventually she opened up and told them what had happened. We did find an interview with one of the kayakers in which he said, and we quote, It turned out that we were the first to whom Valya told about the death of her friends. She said that they had a wonderful leader and that they were in a hurry to go through the route as soon as possible, so they were very tired. When bad weather came, they were all very cold, but they did not descend from the ridge to wait out the bad weather but instead walked the entire time. They were even more tired because of this. As she said, it all started with the death of the strongest participant in the campaign, a young, strong guy. Valya said that the group leader considered him her son because she pretty much raised him from childhood. The guy grabbed his heart, and he suddenly died in front of everyone. Because of this, the leader lost her remaining strength told everyone to go down the mountain and leave her with this guy. They, of course, did not abandon her, and she also died in front of their eyes. What happened next, we could not make out. Valia described everything as an attack of mass madness. Despite her attempts, it was simply impossible to organize further movement with the remaining team. She even tried to drag someone by the hand with her, but he broke free and ran away. And Valia a strong village girl who was accustomed to physical activity, turned out to be the most persistent of all. She was just as unbearably cold as the others. She too was numb as she walked, but she was saved by the thoughts of her family. The girl thought what would happen to her mother if she did not return home. 
Taking a sleeping bag, Value went down to the forest. There she waited out the bad weather, and when she returned, she saw that everyone was dead. Later, she reached the river and decided to wash her hair. She reasoned like this. If you are going to die, you need to look good before you die. By that time, the weather had settled and the sun was hot. We noticed her on the river. Valya had a cold, so we gave her antibiotics and other medicines. And when we continued the route along the river, we met other citizens of Moscow who traveled to Irkutsk together with Valya's group. They were fishing on the shore, and they noticed the girl and began to ask where everyone else was and how they were doing. Valya told them everything that happened. It was a shock for them because during the journey they managed to become friends. Later, when the bodies were already found, our guys helped Valya buy train tickets and walked her home. And that is our second strange fact and finding. Which, by the way, you can kind of see where their confusion lies in the story, right? Yeah. It's consistent up until the point to where the madness begins. Valya is pretty closed up about not really, I don't really want to say not really telling the story, but inconsistently telling it, in my opinion. A lot of inconsistencies happening. Yeah. But what we know for sure is that six individuals died and Valya survived. Okay. Now, our next strange fact and finding is a video that we came across. Now, before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. So while we were digging deep into this topic, we found a video on YouTube. And this video shows the search team coming across the hikers in the mountain. And of course, these hikers are dead already. It's the six individuals who had died. Now, the video itself is only one minute and 27 seconds long, and it is pretty graphic. Like I said, it shows the search team coming across the hikers on the mountain. And uh, if you want to see it, we will provide a link to it on our website for anyone that wants to watch it. But all the hikers have their face blurred out, but they're obviously dead lying there on the ground. So that was a very interesting and unique video to come across considering, you know, it was the first video of them and they're still just chilling there on the ground dead. Yeah. Did you watch the video, Dan? I watched up to a certain point and I was just like, I don't want to watch it no more. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty gruesome. Yeah, it's sad. All right, so let's get into our next strange facts and finding. All right, so our next one is about the Dyatlov Pass incident. Now, if you aren't familiar with what this incident is, it's where in February of 1959, nine experienced hikers in Russia died in strange circumstances while hiking in the northern Ural Mountains. The group's tent was found torn from the inside, and the hikers' bodies were found in various stages of undress, some with fatal injuries, including skull fractures and chest trauma, but with no visible signs of a struggle. The cause of their deaths was still unknown, and various theories suggest possible causes such as an avalanche, infrasound, military involvement, or even extraterrestrial activity. So like we said, this case remains unsolved and it has become a subject of fascination for many. Now, if you want to know more about this topic, we did an episode over the Dyatlov Pass incident, and we highly suggest everyone to go take a listen to it. That incident and this Kamar Daban incident are both very, very similar. It is, and I believe they call the Kamar Daban incident like the second Dyatlov Pass, just because it's so similar and mysterious. Yeah. So we figured we had to mention that one. All right, so let's get into our last strange fact and finding. 
our last strange fact and finding is actually about a chemical leak that occurred in Sverdlovsk. Now, before we talk about this leak, we need to talk about the city of Sverdlovsk. So this city is now located in Russia and it is called Yekaterinburg. However, when the Soviet Union was still a thing, the city was called Sverdlovsk. Now, this city, Sverdlovsk, had been a major production center of the Soviet Union military-industrial complex since World War II. By the 1970s, 87% of the city's industrial production was military. It produced tanks, ballistic missiles, rockets, and other armaments. So between 1947 to 1949, there was a biological warfare facility that was built in Sverdlovsk. In 1974, the facility was renamed as the Scientific Research Institute of Bacterial Vaccine Preparations. Okay, now that we have that understanding of the town and the research facility, let's fast forward to April 2nd, 1979. So on that day, spores of Bacillus anthracis, pretty much anthrax, was accidentally released from the research facility in that city. The ensuing outbreak of the disease resulted in the deaths of at least 66 people, and although the exact number of victims remains unknown, for many years, Soviet authorities hid the truth and stated that the cause of the outbreak was due to butchers handling tainted meat, which then people ate them, and it caused them to die. Eventually, the truth came out that they messed up, and this accident was actually the first major indication to other world leaders that the Soviet Union was developing biological weapons. Now, a lot of people point to this incident and say that maybe a biological weapon was the cause of the individuals dying at the Kamar Daban incident, and it's being covered up. I mean, it is one of the leading theories when it comes to this incident. However, before we dive deep into that theory, let's talk about some other ones that we have. So now we're going to get into our theories section. So Dan, can you start that off for us? Sure, can. Now, before we get into that, we are going to take a quick break. It's our last one, so don't go nowhere. All right, welcome back. So our first theory is that they actually died of hypothermia and exhaustion. So just like their autopsy report said, they died of hypothermia, but they also noticed that there was a complete absence of glucose in the tissues of the deceased. Here's a quote by one of the rescuers. At the group's campsites, we were, to put it mildly, discouraged by the group's diet. For dinner and breakfast, one can of canned meat, 338 grams, and one can of fish, 250 grams, were spent. Meaning, that's opened, used. I don't know what the side dish was and how much, but there was clearly too little protein in the diet for seven healthy, tired people. The overnight stays were on the ridge much higher than the forest zone, and the group must have had problems with cooking and drying clothes. Then the pathologist conducting the examination said that glucose is completely absent in the tissues of the dead, in the liver, and elsewhere. Those syndromes that were observed in the group fully correspond to hypothermia plus complete exhaustion of the body. But see, that completely contradicts what Valia said during her interview, that they had plenty of food, and their diet consisted of, what, 2,300 or 2,600 calories per person? 2,300, either 71 or 17 grams. But during hikes and stuff like that, you burn so many calories that the suggested amount of calories like for this hike was well over 5,000. Mm. They were well under the what calorie intake, but also learning that Ludmila, she was very, uh, how do you say it? 
She liked to push the limits. She was a go-getter. She was a go-getter. And she always carried less food than what they actually needed. Because she was a survivalist. That doesn't make sense, but okay. That's the first theory, and that's pretty much what the autopsies say. Okay. All right. And that's one of the most common talked about theories or connected theories to this. I think that's the, what they actually say it was. Okay, so that's the leading one. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about our next theory, which is called mushrooms. So Ludmila was known as a forger, and she taught that to her students as like, hey, this is a good skill to know when you're hiking, you know? Now, individuals think that it was possible that one of the hikers may have found some mushrooms and added it to their breakfast. Not the good kind. Yeah, not the good kind of mushrooms. So after eating breakfast, the mushrooms that they could have eaten poisoned them, and it started to kick in when they began hiking again, which would cause the hikers to start hallucinating and become sick. A common hallucination caused by psilocybin is actually to see them start crying blood. Mm, I don't know about that one. And I've never really heard of anybody dying from uh, psilocybin. But anyways, that's my own personal opinion. So overdosing on psilocybin can lead to psychosis, convulsions, cardiac arrest, and possibly put someone into a coma. The death is still believed to be hypothermia, but it was due to eating bad mushrooms that led them to be in an altered state. Now, this is the reason why Valia probably didn't suffer more of the symptoms. Could be that, uh, you know, maybe she had a tolerance or maybe she just didn't eat as much as the others. I don't really lean towards this theory that much. Blaming it on psilocybin mushrooms. Maybe blaming it on non-psilocybin mushrooms, poisonous mushrooms. Yeah. Uh, but not psilocybin. No. I mean, if Lumilla was a forager and she taught this to her students, I'm pretty sure that she would have inspected the mushrooms before they threw it in. Maybe not. Mushrooms are very common to mistake between one another. I mean, it's very common to say, hey, this one's edible, and it looks just like one that's uh, poisonous. I mean, you are the mushroom guy. Mushroom king. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm less uh, believe in this one. Yeah, that one's eh. It's iffy. All right, so let's get on to our next theory. All right, so the next theory that we have is called contaminated water. So this theory relies on the fact that it was storming and that the rain washed toxins down from the mountains. Now, Lake Baikal sits up on top of these mountains and it is known as a toxic waste dumping ground. So if the toxic waste gets washed downstream from the lake and the hikers stop to get water to drink, meaning that they could have drank the toxic waste. This would mean that they all drank a different amount of water, possibly, and had different severity of symptoms at first, and it all started just a little bit after each other. They believe that drinking this contaminated water is what killed them. But the downside of this theory is that the deaths were an isolated incident, considering that there were other groups hiking in the area, and they didn't have any deaths. And also, the autopsy didn't say any toxins were found in them, but it was like a, almost like a month before their bodies were found, so I don't know how long it would have stayed in their system. Yeah, we kind of go over the toxins and stuff here in a little bit on, I think, a, not the next theory, but the following one. But yeah, yeah, I'm right there with you. If it was contaminated water, other groups would have had it happen to them, not just one. And it would have happened over multiple times. Not this one isolated incident. True. All right, so let's get on to our next theory, which is called military secret. 
Ooh. So this theory states that the hikers were making their way to the ridge where they ended up seeing some type of Russian experiment being conducted in the mountains. Now, after seeing these secret experiments, the hikers were killed for what they saw. Then their deaths were covered up by the police and medical examiner. Now, this is based on the notion that the group deviated from the normal route and stumbled upon something that they shouldn't have seen. There is a downside to this theory, which is two things. Number one, value survived. You know, if all the hikers saw everything, you know, why did they leave uh, Valia alive? And also, if there was a military experiment going on, a secret one, why was it being done in a public area where many people hike through? Doesn't make sense. So, eh, I don't think it might have been, uh, it's my personal opinion that I don't think it was a secret military experiment being done just because of those two facts. Doesn't really line up, but I'm open to hear other suggestions. Now, during the research, didn't you say that she had to sign some paper to not talk to the media? Yes. So as I was scrounging through Russian websites and having to translate them, I found one website that stated that the reason she didn't talk to any journalist for 25 years is that she had to sign an agreement with officials not to speak about what had happened. Now, if it was her attorney or lawyer, I could kind of see that. But if it was like government officials, that's a big red flag. Something's going on. Yeah, like what did they have to do with it, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I just saw it once. I didn't see it any, any other place. So, you know, kind of iffy about that one. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. All right, so let's get into our next theory. All right, so this next theory is called nerve gas. This theory goes off of the Novichok gas being the culprit of killing the hikers. Novichok gases are a class of nerve agent that was created by Soviet Russia up until 1993, which is a coincidence with the incident of this year. This nerve agent is thought to be the deadliest nerve agent to exist. It was reported that Novichok agents were being tested in areas near the Kamar Daban region. Now, being exposed to this nerve agent results in rapid death, which seemed to happen to the hikers. Now, looking at how long nerve agents last, they can last in water for up to four months before they evaporate. The particles are heavy and will float near the bottom toward the ground, and the stronger ones are really hazardous in the location where they were used. This could be connected to the rain washing it downstream toward where the hikers were, though. But then again, the downside, no toxins were found in the bodies. But I tried to look up to see how long VX can stay in the body, and I found an article about the half-life of VX in foliage, though you know, grass, the environment. And from my understanding, it seems to be around 72 hours, possibly. But I guess it depends on how much was there. But in the body, I couldn't find a definite answer. Yeah, I, uh, I was searching around for stuff about VX, and I came across a very, very interesting film. I wouldn't even call it interest. I would call it more of... Graphic? Graphic effed up. Yeah, it's pretty effed up. It is an old video, looks to be from like the 70s, 80s, maybe even earlier. And it's the U.S. Army conducting experiments on rabbits. Now, the experiment that they conduct is they take the VX nerve agent and they take one rabbit and they drop a droplet of the VX in its eye. And then a minute and a half later, the rabbit convulses, foams at the mouth and dies. 
The next rabbit they take and they drop a drop on its back. They uh, shaved part of its back to make it open to where they drop the VX directly on the skin. Yep, and it took the rabbit about 15 minutes to die. Yeah. Then they did it again on another rabbit's skin and then saved the rabbit using like a combination of some type of like chemicals, but still after they gave it to the rabbit, he still like was convulsing and everything. They used Clorox bleach to clean the spot where they dropped the VX though, which was weird. Yeah. Um, but the, the video was fairly graphic. Like I said, it shows the rabbits dying. Uh, it's an old video from the U.S. Army. We'll have it up on our website for anyone that wants to watch it. It's about nine minutes long. So, yeah, there you go. You can go watch that if you want to. Which, you know what that reminded me of when they used the Clorox and stuff on the bunny? What did it remind you of? Lysol. Do you know what Lysol used to be used for back in the day? No. So, random knowledge, Nuggy. Lysol, the U.S. disinfectant, was the number one selling feminine hygiene product in the early to mid-1900s, sold as both a douche and a female contraceptive. <laughs> well, god dang. You're going to douche yourself out with some Lysol, smelling all lemony. I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't suggest using it now, because I think they realized how like powerful or strong it was, and uh, they're like, you know, this could kill everything, <laughs> like all this bacteria. But yeah, that's what they... Uh, I guess it was in, uh, what it was actually first created for, being a feminine product. Damn. The more you know. The more you know. All right. So let's get into our next theory, which is that uh, Valia's story was inaccurate. So this theory pretty much states that when an individual undergoes a traumatic experience, the memory of the events can often be wrong. They often misremember aspects of this experience especially when they tell it many, many years later. It could also be that Valia exaggerated some of the story, but not on purpose, but because she could not remember it exactly. So the research surrounding the inaccurate nature of eyewitness statements is extensive. It is possible that the hikers died exactly how the autopsy report concluded they did. The group died to hypothermia after not being properly sheltered that night. And, of course, they died together on the mountain. Valia could have survived this by her decision to go to the forest, a difference in clothing, or, as Valia reportedly says, because of her fitness level, her physical fitness, and her regards to survival. She's just built different. That's pretty much what she said. Um, it should also be added that people who die from hypothermia often experience paradoxical undressing where they strip off their clothes shortly before death. This would be a valid explanation for the hikers being found partially undressed, which some of them were. Now, this theory can't stand on its own, but it can be applied to other theories where there seems to be like a missing piece in, you know, Valia's testimony that doesn't really match or could have been pretty much exaggerated. But, you know, it's impossible to tell, you know, how credible her story is because it was a long time ago. She was the only one up there. Yeah. And then the fact that back then when she told the story, there were so many inconsistencies. Yeah. I mean, I get, you know, it was a traumatic event. But, you know, when you tell the story multiple times and you just kept changing stuff, it's kind of hard for anyone to really get an accurate timeline of things. Yeah. 
All right, so let's move on to our next theory. Dan, what is it over? This next theory is called State of Panic. So this theory is that there was an anticyclone and a strong wind. Now, if you don't know what an anticyclone is, you know during a cyclone where it kind of sucks air from down below and up? Well, the anticyclone actually does the reverse. It brings that cold air down to the ground. So if you didn't know that, the more you know, because I didn't know that. Now, magnetic oscillations began when these anticyclone and the strong wind happened. Then huge airflows would have created infrasound. And this sound, this infrasound could affect the psyche. Now, the separate rocks all around under the strong wind can become an infrasonic generator of enormous power. This can cause a state of panic, unaccountable horror in a person. And from what Value was saying, the rest of the hikers were behaving restlessly and her speech was inconsistent, meaning aka she was confused. Mm-hmm. I mean... Maybe, maybe she wasn't affected as much as the other ones who were in the middle of it, which is why she was saying, I don't really remember much, state of panic, everybody was dying, and somehow I made it, you know, down the ridge and followed the power lines, and that's all I remember. I mean, that's what happens when you're built different. I guess. That's an interesting theory. I don't know, because I believe, like, it throws me off because she was, I want to say it was her that was saying that the strongest one, the best fit one was uh alexander alexander the one that uh ludmila called her son even though they weren't blood related he was supposedly the most fit of the group but then after everybody died and stuff she like claimed that it was her physical fitness that saved her i'm just like but you were stating earlier that out of everyone he was the most fit yeah so it's kind of like eh. i don't know i personally like this next theory the best which is our last one throw it at us All right, so this last theory that we have is called abduction. So this theory is that extraterrestrials came down and killed the hikers. Somehow, Valia survived, and she is afraid to tell the public that it was really extraterrestrials that caused this. And uh, she's afraid of the blowback that she would receive and the possibility that she might end up being thrown into a mental institution. I mean, in the area, there is a lot of UFO sightings, a lot. Even to this day, there's still UFO sightings being reported. True. Now, what if it wasn't an alien, but maybe it was like a Bigfoot or a Yeti that terrorized them? I mean, that's possible. Like, searching up Yetis in Russia, there are tons of sightings. But I know in certain, like, towns and stuff in Russia, they hold traditional events to celebrate Yetis. The one video I showed you where... You're just like, is that a furry costume? I mean, technically, yeah. Someone was dressed up as like a Yeti and they were like dancing around and such. It seems to be a yearly tradition. Hmm. I don't know. Kind of hard to believe the abduction one. Um, It's fun to think about. It is fun to think about. Because, I mean, they thought of that with the Dyatlov Pass one, too. They did. But I want to hear your personal thoughts and theories about this, Dan. What do you personally believe happened to the hikers, what caused them to die, and how did Valia survive it? Yeah, I think it was a nerve agent. After watching the video of the bunnies, as horrible as that was, and then just the way she described how everyone died, they fit hand in hand, sadly. But the fact that she didn't suffer any of those symptoms makes me question her innocence. She was around everybody. 
So the first one went down, then Lumilla. Not soon after she went down, then the other two started to run off, and then they got it. But Valia, though, if you listen to what like she told the kayakers, she grabbed the hand of one of them and tried to drag them off, but then they crawled away. So I'm guessing that was Dennis who ran or crawled behind the rock or something. So she was in physical contact with them, but yet nothing happened to her. Supposedly, one of the girls bit her in the hand, Tatiana. I did see that somewhere, yeah. I read that a couple times, that she was trying to drag Tatiana down the mountain, and Tatiana bit her hand, and she was like, what the hell? And just let her go. Yeah, so it's like, she was in physical contact with them. So why didn't she not have any of those symptoms? At first, I was just like, she's a sleeper agent. She's working for Russia military. But it's just weird that she didn't suffer any of this, and I don't, I can't, like, go with her, oh, it's my physical fitness level that saved me. I mean, that took out everybody in her group very fast. So either something's very, like, off about her story that she's hiding it, but I do believe that this was, like, nerve gas. Either they were very unfortunate and she got super lucky or something. Okay. All right. I'm going to go with the lame theory on this one. Hypothermia? I just think that they all got in those two tents, right? The two tents were uprooted. They were all really, really cold. Instead of them waking up and having breakfast, like Valia stated, instead, the tent was ripped open. Valia was like, screw this. I'm going down to the forest to go sleep in my sleeping bag. You know, good luck staying up here. She went down to the forest. They stayed up there. They ended up, you know, having hypothermia and dying due to their stubbornness. Ludmila had a heart attack and died. So when the storm passed, Value decided to walk back up the mountain ridge. Are you guys ready to walk back down? And instead she found all of them dead, frozen, which she freaked out, grabbed uh, the compass and map, was kind of like in a state of panic and disbelief, and just walked towards the river. See, only thing I have to dispute with that is with her interview in 2018. When you went back up to the mountain, were you hoping that someone was alive? No, I saw that they all died. They were dead before she went down the mountain to the forest. So she said that she saw them die, then she left them there, slipped, and then went back up there to get supplies and then closed their eyes. Yeah, see, the issue I have with this is that At 10 a.m., they all started walking down the mountain ridge. That was August 5th, okay? So they had already weathered the storm. They started walking down the mountain ridge, and then Alexander kicked over, and then everybody else kicked over. And this happened not within, like, hours. This happened within minutes of one another. They were all dead, and Valia hauled ass down to the forest. That was at 10, like, she probably got to the forest line by noon, let's just give her a, a couple hours, you know, even though it was only two miles away. How could she go back to sleep in her sleeping bag and sleep until the next day? Being malnourished? Malnourished, or maybe she didn't get much sleep from that night, getting the tent ripped up and stuff. But then again, I mean, you're in a state of shock. You just watched your friends just mysteriously die. There's no way my ass is going to be sleeping in a sleeping bag. I'm going to be amped up, full of adrenaline, 
I'm going to go through that forest and I'm going to find somebody to help me because there's no way I'm staying anywhere close to that area. I'd be afraid of like a cloud of mysterious something getting me, you know, whatever got my friends. I don't know. I mean, you see it in like many movies when like, I hate to say it movies, but some of the stuff is based on true stories. Something like that happens. And like you said, they're in a state of shock, but yet they go find somewhere and then they're like sleep. Like, no, that didn't happen. They'll sleep, wake up, think it was a dream, and then go back up, go back to the site or something. Be like, oh shit, it did happen. So I don't know. State of shock, I guess anything could happen. Yeah, I don't know though. If you are a loved one or a medical professional and you know anything about state of shock and if individuals can go to sleep after something traumatic happens, send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. yeah. With that being said, uh, I don't have much more to say about this topic. I'm pretty much Kamar Devond out. Yeah. All right. Well, if you or a loved one know Valia or know anyone involved in this incident or have hiked that region and you would like to send us an email and tell us about it, feel free to do that. Send those emails to Aaron at theoriesofthethirdkind.com or Dan, D-A-N, at theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and we would love to hear from you. Yeah. All right. Well, with that being said, that is the end of today's topic, and we are going to move on to our On the Scene. Now, if you're not familiar with what our On the Scene is, it is where individuals from all over the world go and conduct interviews, either with themselves or with family members or with strangers on the streets. They ask these individuals of their personal opinions regarding certain conspiracies or mysterious topics, and then they submit those audio interviews to us via email. Now, anyone can do this, meaning you. Yes, you, who's listening right now, can do this. All you got to do is get your phone out, record the audio, make sure it's less than two minutes long, make sure there is no music in the background. There can be no music, okay? And, uh... Submit that audio to our email at Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, at theoriesofthethirdkind.com or Dan, D-A-N, at theoriesofthethirdkind.com and we will put you in line to play at the end of the show each week. No eating either. Yeah, no eating while doing the interviews. All right, so this week's On the Scene is from Scott H., and we're going to play that right now. Aaron and Dan, so today we're going to see how many people actually believe in Bigfoot. Do you believe in Bigfoot? I, something like it could have existed, maybe. I don't know. I would say no. <laughs> no. Why not? No. I do not. No. I do not live in Bigfoot, no. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. I think I do, yes. There's got to be something to it. I wouldn't say I disbelieve in it, but some concrete proof would be nice. I've definitely seen things that make me believe there's something out there. Okay. Same here. I, I'd say it could be. Possibly. It could be possible that it's real. No. Not at all. I do not know. I totally believe in Bigfoot. Um, I mean, the proof is extensive. I personally don't. Um, I believe in evolution, and I think that it's possible that we could have seen something similar to that. Um, but, I mean, it's possible, absolutely. But I don't, like, have a full belief in it. Oh, definitely. I've, I've uh, known somebody who's had some Bigfoot experiences. All right, so that's our On the Scene. Thank you, Scott, for that wonderful On the Scene this week. Yes, thank you for that. I'm glad there's people out there that believe in Bigfoot. Yeah, and I like that type of On the Scene where somebody goes out there and asks multiple individuals in the public their personal opinions on certain topics. It is nice. Yeah. 
But uh, it seemed like the consensus was, eh, maybe, but we need proof. Yeah. I'm kind of the same way. I'm like, eh, I want proof, though. Show me he exists. When you come to me with theories or any topics or anything, and you want to talk about it, I like to see proof. Give us the facts. Yeah, give us the facts. That's what I hated about doing this research on Kamar Daban is that a lot of individuals will insert their personal opinions on things. And it's like, you don't know that. That's what you think. That's your assumption, you know, or your personal opinion of what happened. Give us the facts. Quit muddying the waters. Exactly. Like, when we told you the story of this incident, the first part was from Valia's point of view. And that's how she told it. We didn't throw our two cents into it or what we thought about it. That was straightly from her. Yep. I wish there was more reporting like that. We're doing God's work. We try. Yeah. Anyways, uh, thank you again, Scott, for your on the scene this week. Keep sending them. We love them. That's right. All right. So now we would usually move on to birthday shout outs, but like we previously stated on other episodes, birthday shout outs have now become so much. And so time-consuming, I mean, it, would t- it takes up like 20 to 30 minutes of the end of an episode, that we instead decided to make birthday shout-outs exclusive to Patreon-only members. So if you aren't a Patreon member and you want a birthday shout-out, go sign up to our Patreon. It's only 5 bucks a month. Not only will you get a birthday shout-out, but hey, guess what? You'll also get a regular shout-out if you want one and a freaking anniversary or wedding shout-out. And uh, if you're located in the Austin area and are having a wedding, you can invite us. We'll show up. Yeah. You probably won't know that's us, but hey, we'll show up. Um, it's not a guarantee, though, by the way. Yeah, not a guarantee, but we try our best. Yeah. And uh, you'll get the shout outs. And hey, you'll also get 150 something extra episodes. That's Patreon exclusive. 154. 154 that are ad free. Okay. Easy to listen to. Easy to download. Can't beat it. Five bucks a month. 16 cents a day. It's pretty much an Egg McMuffin. I think it might be cheaper than an Egg McMuffin now with the freaking inflation. Egg McMuffin price. Let's see. You would get like two or three Egg McMuffins. No, see, the price of Egg McMuffins have skyrocketed. But hey, there's something that stays consistent with McDonald's, and it's the price of their sodas. A dollar. Well, it used to. I don't know if it is now. Let's see. Uh, Egg McMuffin meal, $3.99. An Egg McMuffin, just the sandwich, $2.79. So, eh, yeah, you could get an Egg McMuffin. You know what else is consistent with McDonald's? What? Their ice cream machine not working. You know what else is consistent with McDonald's? I always have to take a shit immediately after I eat there. I don't know what's in the food. All right, well, if you are a loved one, (laughs) have to immediately take a shit after you eat McDonald's. Send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, With that being said, do you have anything else you want to say or announce or anything before we roll out today's episode nope i am good all right well with that being said i want to thank you for joining us today and again thank you for your support you are all amazing every single one of you so dan would you like to roll us out sure will it's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts because you are not alone